Today marks the first Sunday in Advent, which means we've just all celebrated Thanksgiving, and it looks like we've all survived the retail apocalypse known as Black Friday. Did anybody go out into the mayhem? Was it okay? Yeah. All right. Yeah, just okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah, you're still here. Good. I'm glad you're here, Neil. Uh, the term Black Friday seems to have originated from Philadelphia within the police department back in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and it actually had nothing to do with retailers going into the black into their ledger books. That was kind of a way for them to, to spin the term more positively. In an article going back uh, in 1966 in Philly, they said this, Black Friday is the name that Philadelphia Police Department gave to the Friday following Thanksgiving Day. It's not a term of endearment for them. Black Friday officially opens the Christmas shopping season in Center City, and it usually brings massive traffic jams, overcrowded sidewalks, as the downtown stores are mobbed from opening to closing. <clears throat> this year, the National Retail Federation estimates that 1146 million Americans, which represents half of the American adult population in the United States, will have participated in Black Friday shopping this uh, weekend. Now, though many now today uh, will stick to online sales, uh, millions will still brave the crowds at brick and mortar stores. And the way they do this is to attract customers, right? The, uh, they, they promote these doorbuster sales so that people are camped out all night long for that deeply discounted TV, right? And it's only, these discounts are only available once a year. And so to prepare for this retail apocalypse, retailers will hire thousands upon thousands of extra seasonal employees. They'll open at the crack of dawn, and there's somebody on standby ready to call 911 in case there's a stampede or an altercation. The mayhem associated with Black Friday has gotten so bad, there's even a website now called blackfridaydeathcount.com. That actually exists, and it tracks all reported injuries and deaths going back to 2006, all over parking spaces, deeply discounted TVs, and toys. From foot traffic to online shopping, it is consumerism at its worst, right? On Thanksgiving, it's all about gratitude and joy, and then not a few hours later, it's all about consumerism. We like gratitude. We love consumerism. And it seems like the only way to avoid the bustle and the commotion of the season is to just turn off your devices, uh, rent a yurt, and spend the weekend on Walden Pond. And in the wake of the bustle and clamor, it's really easy to miss the hope and peace and love and joy that we're supposed to feel and experience during the Advent season. It's amazing to me that when God decided to enter into our darkness and chaos, he did so in a humble, quiet manner. And he chose a teenage girl that nobody would have hardly ever had noticed. If Mary had not become the mother of Jesus, she would not have been remembered in the pages of history. This morning, as we enter into the season of Advent, we need to silence the distractions of the busyness of the season and listen to Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. Mary's song is in fact the first Christmas carol ever written. It's a song of praise and thanksgiving. It's a joyful expression of gratitude for her mighty God who drew near and entered in. 
this morning in Mary's song, we're going to learn three things that will anchor us, not only during this Advent season, but if we'll really appropriate those things in our lives, it'll anchor us for a lifetime. First, we learn that God is a God that redeems. That's one of the first things she sings is that God is a Savior who sees us and brings about our redemption. The second thing we'll learn in Mary's song is that God is a God who reorders things. In a world that is uh, grossly out of order, we find that God is a God of justice and order. And when he comes, he takes all of that disorder and reorders it rightly. And finally, we'll see that God is a God who remembers. God, in his love, has bound himself to us through his steadfast love, and he's expressed that steadfast love to us through promises. He didn't have to enter in, but he did. And he made promises that he intends to keep. We'll see this morning that God is a God who redeems, who reorders, and who remembers. So let's look at Mary's song together in Luke chapter 1. Now before we get to Mary's song, let's just get familiar again with Mary's story. If you look back in Luke chapter 1, now a lot of times with these familiar stories, the, the nativity scene is one of the more popular stories in the Bible, it can be easy to get familiar with it where we almost lose sight of what's going on in that story. But if we look back in Luke chapter 1, we meet Mary and we find out that she's a teenage girl from the town of Nazareth. She's likely somewhere between 14 and 16 years old, and we find that she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothal in this time was more than an engagement, but it was less than a marriage. It had the commitment of marriage so that if you were to break off a betrothal, it was considered divorce. You actually had to get a certificate of divorce to break off a betrothal, which is different. If you break off an engagement today, you don't have to go through all of that. But it was legally binding um, in that sense. But at the same time, it wasn't the same thing as marriage. So couples didn't live together. They didn't sleep together. They didn't enjoy all the, the benefits um, that come with marriage. It was kind of, of something more than an engagement, but less than a marriage. And so we find Mary is betrothed to Joseph. And at some point, the angel Gabriel comes and visits Mary. And he tells her that she has found favor with God. Now look with me at Luke 1, verse 31 through 33. Luke writes this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So Gabriel tells her, You'll conceive in your womb, and you're going to bear a son. Now you're going to name him Jesus, and he will be God's son. He's going to be that promised king of, uh, in the line of David that everyone has been waiting for, and his kingdom will never end. See, in the David's life, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you're taking notes, write that down, go back and read it. Uh, 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 and midway through David's life, God um, comes to him and says, listen, there is going to be one from your line. He will be a son from your line of your heritage who will take the throne one day and his kingdom will never end. Now, if you're a king, that's what you want, right? You want son after son after son so that there's this healthy line of succession. And God gives David this promise that there will come a day 
when David has a son from his line, and his kingdom will never end. So what happens? Well, eventually the kingdom of Israel is taken over, and his kingdom does end. And so they start to wonder, okay, if God is going to make good on his promise, he's going to have to give us a son one day whose kingdom will never end. And so they started to take that promise and wrap that up with all of that expectation and longing of the Messiah. So they knew when Messiah comes, not only is he going to deliver us from oppression, but he will be one who comes from the line of David, who will establish a kingdom that never ends. And now the angel tells Mary, that her son will be that one who takes over the throne of his father David, who will reign over the house of Jacob, over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. Now imagine Mary taking all of that in, taking in the, 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 the implications of this, uh, this long-expected child, the fact that she's gonna be pregnant, right? All of these questions swirling around in her head. It's likely that on that day she was thinking about her, her life with Joseph and what that would be like. Perhaps there's preparations for the wedding day. All these things, nowhere in her line of thought is thinking about one day I'm going to bear the child, the Messiah, the coming king. And All of those thoughts are swirling in her head and God is telling her that he has an altogether different plan for her life. And so then she asks the next logical question. Luke tells us, she writes, she says this, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, I know a lot of times when we think about ancient people, we often think ancient people are stupid people. They just didn't know how the world worked. Listen, Mary knows how babies are made. She's had that conversation about the birds and the bees. So she's asking, well, Gabriel, how can I have a child isn't there a prerequisite before having a child? And that's not happened yet. So how could I have a child? And I'm not, I'm not married yet. So how could that happen? So Gabriel, you've left out some really important details and information. So I'd love it if you could fill out those details. Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, there's a lot of really cool things going on here. One of those is it's, it's even harking back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, where it says that the, 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 the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, creating life. And here we see um, God, the angel tell Mary, just like the Holy Spirit hovered over the darkness and the chaos to bring about first life, the Holy Spirit will, uh, will overshadow you. He'll, he'll hover over you to create new life once again. Gabriel fills in the blanks and says, Joseph will not be the father of this child. God will be the father of this child. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and bring about this divine conception. And because of that, he will be called holy. He will be God's son. This is what Christians refer to as the incarnation. Have you ever heard that term before, the incarnation? It, what that means is, it, the word itself just means to be wrapped in flesh. The doctrine teaches us that the eternally existing Son of God took on flesh to become human. 
So God the Son has eternally existed. He didn't give up his divine nature. He didn't lose it in the incarnation. Rather, the Son of God to his divine nature adds on a second nature, a human nature, so that the, the resulting child, Jesus, is both fully God and fully man. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of the many implications that come with the incarnation this morning. We recently did a whole sermon on that in our We Believe series. That sermon is called The Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, where we discuss the reality of the incarnation, the reason for the incarnation, and our response to the incarnation. And you can go listen to that on our website. We'll have a link to it in our study guide because there's a lot there to unpack um, and to appropriate in our lives. But for now, I want us to focus on Mary. Think about her. One minute she's planning a wedding, her life with Joseph, and the next minute an angel has interrupted those plans and told her everything is going to change. That she is going to essentially be pregnant outside of wedlock with God's son. What would Joseph think? At some point she's going to show. At some point he's going to see. And he's going to know, I didn't make that happen. He's going to think she's been unfaithful to him and look to divorce her. And that's actually what happens, right? When he finds out, he, he goes about that process and an angel comes and tells him, don't do that. She has not been unfaithful to you. She's been incredibly faithful to God. Do not divorce her. Become her husband and help her raise this child. What would the townspeople think, right? Small town, Nazareth. They'll either think she's cheated on Joseph or that they too couldn't wait until marriage. But either way, in an honor and shame culture, she's done. Her reputation is over. Her life is over. And the angel doesn't make a bold declaration to all the town to tell them that Mary has been faithful to God. A million thoughts are going through her head. And then the angel tells her, now behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And now this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed. All of this sounds unbelievable. So before Gabriel leaves, he gives her something to bring confirmation. Now just think about how kind that is. That with this unbelievable thing that, the, that, the, that the, the angel has just told her, he's given her a way to go and confirm and see if it's true that her relative, Elizabeth, who is well past that childbearing age, is already pregnant. She was so far past childrearing age that her name was just called barren. That's what she was just known as the barren one, right? And now she's in the sixth month of her pregnancy. So she'll be able to tell right away, as soon as she lays eyes on her, that she's pregnant. She, who has previously been barren, is now pregnant. Gabriel gives her a way to confirm his message. And at the same time, gives her a beloved relative who will be able to instantly believe her story as well because something unbelievable has happened to her that she now has, she knows there's one person who will believe her story. We know from Matthew's gospel, an angel will go to prepare Joseph 
so that he'll believe her as well. But at this point, Mary doesn't know all that. There's so many unknowns. Mary doesn't know how all the details are going to unfold. But her response is one of patient, humble faith. Behold, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. She's got a steadfast faith and trust in the character of God. She doesn't say, when I know all the details, then I'm in. She says, I don't know any of the details really, but I am the servant of the Lord. See, when she can't understand what God is doing, she looks at the character and nature of God and said, he is trustworthy. He is good. And so even though I don't have all of the details, I know who my God is and I will serve him. And so she goes and she makes the journey to Elizabeth's home. And all that time, just imagine on that journey, she's not getting in an Uber. She's not hopping on the camp. She's walking to Elizabeth's house. She's got plenty of time to process all that's going on. And sometime between this angel's announcement and her arrival at Elizabeth's house, she becomes pregnant with the son of God. And as she walks into Elizabeth's house, the baby John in utero leaps for joy. Elizabeth exclaims, this is a joy-filled occasion. The mother of my God has just walked into my house. And then in verse 46, Mary's story bursts forth in song. And she says this, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God's plan intrudes on her plans. Initially, she's confused and wonders how all of this Going, is going to work. She doesn't have the details. She doesn't have a detailed timeline. She doesn't even have a job description of what it's gonna be like to be the mother of God. What she gets from God is God himself. He draws near to her. Mary says that he has seen me, that God sees her in her humble estate and he lifts her up. And from deep within her soul, her spirit rejoices. She feels the greatness and the awesomeness and the nearness of God, and she can't contain it. And all that processing, all that thinking in her soul finally bursts forth into this joyous song. It's like this geyser, right, in like a national park that's slowly building this pressure beneath the surface until finally the water and the pressure has nowhere else to go and it erupts. That's Mary's song. All of this thinking, all of this processing of what God is doing, and now it bursts forth in joyous song. And from deep in her soul, she sees that God is a God who redeems. He is the God of redemption. She says, I rejoice in God, my Savior. God is our Savior. Redemption is that gracious initiative of God where he saves us, from our sin and all of its effects. When you think about redemption, think about this. It's the gracious initiative of God whereby he saves us from all of our sin and its effects. 
Now, Mary doesn't know all the details of how God's plan of redemption is going to work, but she knows that he's going to bring about his plan through the life inside her womb. His name is Jesus. That name Jesus means Yahweh saves, Yeshua in the Hebrew. Yahweh saves, God saves. That's what the angel told uh, Joseph in Matthew one twenty one. She told Joseph that she, Mary, will bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. So she knows that Jesus is the long-awaited, promised king who will come and reign, that his kingdom will never end. She knows that God is on the move. Now, if you think about her time in history, it's been 400 years since the last prophet, 400 years of silence with no word from God on how he's gonna bring about his plan of redemption. And now in this tiny village of Nazareth, God is moving and his plan of redemption is unfolding. And she doesn't have to know all the details. She knows her God is on the move and that's enough for her. She can trust in the character and nature of God to bring about his plan of redemption. What before seemed impossible, the immaculate conception of a child has been accomplished. What God promised, he has delivered on his commitment. And she's learned that God can be trusted to make good on his promise. One thing we need to notice about Mary's song in this stanza is at this point, she's not speaking about redemption generally. She's talking about what God, she's not talking about uh, yet what God is going to do in the world at large. She has personalized the redemptive plan of God. Did you notice that? She said, I rejoice in God, my Savior. My Savior. That's critical because that's when it becomes soul stirring. When you personalize the redemption plan of God, not just God does things out there, but he does things in here. That's when it becomes soul stirring. That's when it produces joy. See, God isn't theoretically just doing something out there. Mary recognizes that as God is moving, he's doing something for her. She says, God has seen me. Little insignificant me. She's a nobody. And God has seen her. And he's done great things for her. When you personalize God's redemption, he goes from being a savior to your savior. And when that happens, something changes inside of you. You recognize that God doesn't just look generally out there, but he looks on your humble estate. He sees you in your lowness. He sees your sin, but instead of rejecting you, Instead of being indifferent towards you, instead of leaving you to figure it out on your own, God enters in. He draws near and he does great things for you. And when that realization happens, when that penny drops, God becomes your savior. And from deep within your soul, you will feel something come alive. I remember when that happened to me I was describing it to a friend. And I said, you know, you remember watching TV sometimes with your parents, like those old Nick at Night reruns that were in black and white? 
Or you remember watching on The Wizard of Oz, the, the first 20 minutes are in black and white, and then she enters Oz and it becomes color? That's what it was like for me. When God became my savior, it was like the world became colored for the first time. And a deep, joy-filled, soul-stirring thing changed inside. Because he wasn't just God out there. He was God in here. And when that happens, something deep within your soul changes. And you find an unending supply of joy. Not superficial happiness based on circumstance, but soul-stirring, never-ending joy that's deeper than circumstance. Martin Luther wrote this. We must both read and meditate upon the nativity. If the meditation does not reach the heart, we shall sense no sweetness, nor shall we know the solace for humankind lies in this contemplation. The heart will not laugh or be merry. As spray does not touch the deep, so mere meditation will not quiet the heart. There is such richness and goodness in this nativity that if we should see and deeply understand, we should be dissolved in perpetual joy. What he's saying is, don't quickly move past what's happening here. Think on it deeply. Don't settle for just being sprinkled with this joy, but, but be immersed in it. Mary's joy and our joy is rooted in the fact that God redeems. Think on that deeply. But not only does God redeem, we see that God also reorders. Look with me at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. And the next stanza, we see that God is a God who extends mercy to those who fear him. Now that phrase, fearing God, we talked about it a lot in our sermon series through the Proverbs, but if you're new with us or by way of reminder, to fear God means that God is your highest priority, your deepest love, and your foundational trust. It takes all three of those. He's your highest priority, he's your deepest love, and he is the foundation of all things that you trust. Or another way to say it is that God has your highest attention, your highest affection, and your highest allegiance. And for all those who put their faith in God, they receive God's mercy. So what is mercy? Mercy is the forgiveness of God despite the fact that we don't deserve it. Every one of us are ill-deserving and undeserving of his grace and forgiveness. See, instead of getting what we deserve, which what we deserve is justice and wrath, Instead of that, when we receive God's mercy, he gives us forgiveness and pardon, love and grace. Now, how does that relate to each other? The, the mercy of God and fearing God. Here's how that works. When you fear God, it means, first and foremost, that you've honestly looked at yourself in the mirror. You've had the integrity to give yourself an honest assessment. And when you do, you come to the conclusion that you're a sinner. And that your sin deserves the justice of God. You don't mitigate it. You don't rationalize it. You don't justify it. You come to that conclusion that you are a sinner in need of grace. And that you deserve justice. 
And then it means you followed that conclusion to the next logical reality. That if you're a sinner deserving of God's justice, that God is right to be opposed to your sin because you deserve that punishment. And then when that happens, the reality of that starts to weigh on you. It becomes a, something that you palpably feel. There's a weight on your heart and you begin to feel contrition genuine sorrow for your sin. Not just worldly sorrow that you don't want what happens as a result of that. You don't like the punishment, but you have a genuine, real contrition. Genuine sorrow that you have broken God's good world. And when you come to that place of godly sorrow, you beg for forgiveness and mercy. You realize you're ill-deserving You're undeserving, but you just hope that maybe if you ask, he'll be generous and gracious. And then you find the good news of the gospel that adds a new conclusion that overwrites the former conclusions that God is a God who extends full pardon and grace to all who who ask. All who ask will receive. And when that happens, the reordering begins. We should be sentenced to eternal death. We should be sentenced to eternal separation from God, but instead we're forgiven. Our sins are pardoned. And if that were the only thing, it would be enough. But he goes so much more. Not only do we not get what we deserve, but we get so much more than we deserve that we are received as sons and daughters adopted into the family of God. See, the humble are then exalted. Those of us who are hungry are filled. The proud who feel no need, no sense of God are scattered and brought low. The mighty are brought down from their thrones. The rich go away with nothing. See, the reason the proud receives God's judgment is because pride is the root of all sin. Not only are the proud just as guilty of sin as the rest of us, but the proud refuses to look honestly at themselves. They refuse to acknowledge that their sin has broken God's good world. They refuse to believe that it's an offense to a holy God. The proud heart seeks to minimize, justify sin. In fact, pride causes humanity to forget God altogether. It removes God from his place of sovereignty. It takes God off of his throne and places ourselves in the vacant seat instead. The organizing principle of the life of pride says life is about my rules, my plans, my life, my way. Mary's song is filled with joy that God is a God of mercy who reorders things, who puts things back in order so that the world is right again. One day Jesus would grow up and he would give his most famous sermon on the mount. Mary's song sounds a lot like Jesus' sermon. Matthew 5, 3 through 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you hear that reordering? Ultimately, 
those who recognize their spiritual poverty will, will, will seek after God for provision. When you are truly hungry, you won't turn away God's bread. Those who are hungry spiritually will seek after God to fill them, to fill them. Those who feel no need for him, who are proud in their own attainment and their own capabilities, who feel no need for God will eventually be scattered. While this is true spiritually, it also happens physically as well. God does not guarantee anyone's material wealth in this life, but everyone who fears the Lord will receive an inheritance as God's son and daughter that will make Warren Buffett's billions seem like chump change. Brother and sister in Christ, whatever your means are today, there is coming a day that it will be reordered. Those who live even paycheck to paycheck, there will come a day when we have the fullness of heaven and God's treasure house. In this stanza, Mary extends her personal vision of God's work beyond herself. She realizes not only is God doing a work in me, he's doing a work that's going to impact the whole world. It is God's mercy that rightly reorders the world. And it's not done by accident. God doesn't do anything by accident, but it's done through his initiating and intentional actions. Look what David Mathis says over at Desiring God. He says, many of us today are prone, whether by nature or nurture, to see God's mercy as peripheral or incidental to who he is. We suspect that perhaps he shows mercy by accident, maybe by weakness. But if we let the scriptures have their say, we will see that God shows his mercy, that when God shows his mercy, he does so with utter intentionality and strength. And we as his creatures get our deepest glimpse of who he is, not just in his sovereignty, but in his goodness. Not simply in his greatness, but in his gentleness. Not only in his towering might, but also in his surprising tenderness. See, as God rightly reorders the world, he does so as a tender child. God extends mercy and rightly reorders the world intentionally through a reordering of his own design. Think about it. The God who is high and mighty and above all becomes low and vulnerable. The God who is mighty becomes vulnerable and weak. The God of infinite size and grandeur becomes small enough to fit inside the womb of a teenage girl. Before God reorders the world, he essentially reorders himself. The God of light enters into our darkness to initiate a revolution that reorders reality itself to extend mercy to those who fear him. Lydia Brownback writes this, both Mary's song and her meeting with Elizabeth foreshadow the saving work of the child Mary carries and the nature of the kingdom that he brings. Here we find the presence of the Holy Spirit the entrance of joy and abundant mercy. What she's saying is as God enters in and reorders the world, he enters in the new age of the Holy Spirit, a a, a life where joy is possible and mercy is extended. Mary's song foreshadows what this child 
will do. And his kingdom is one of joy and mercy to all who receive him. So what's our takeaway here? That God's mercy is a reordering mercy. That when we humble ourselves in faith, we find that we are lifted up. We don't climb the ladder by our own bootstraps and by our own determination and attainments. We climb and are lifted high by humbling ourselves. When we entrust ourselves to him, we find every provision. God is a God of reordering mercy, and we are called to entrust ourselves to him in faith. Mary's song clearly identifies two postures towards God. One is a position of pride, self-reliance, and autonomy. The other is a position of humility and hunger. The pride will not acknowledge their need for mercy, and the humble realize that the mercy of God is all that they have. Which posture reveals your heart? Which posture reflects your heart? Is it the heart of pride and self-autonomy and self-assurance? Or is it the heart of humility and humbleness that looks for the mercy of God? We can have joy because God redeems and reorders. And finally, let's look at the uh, verse 54 to see that, God, that our joy is also rooted in the reality that God remembers. Verse 54, Mary sings, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's song comes to a conclusion and she gives her final reason for joy. She says God is a God who remembers his promises to his people. One thing I love about Mary is Mary knows her Bible. She knows that God has made promises to his people. And here she specifically remembers that the promises were given to Abraham. Look at those promises with me together. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. God promised Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God made a promise to an old man without children. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were well past the point of having children. At the time of this promise, Abraham was about 75. Sarah was 65 years old when God promised them that they would have descendants greater than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And that through him and their offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, of course, he's old. He has no idea how all of this is going to pan out. But in faith, Abraham believed the impossible. He believed God that he would make good on his promise. And it didn't come next year. It didn't come the year after. It would take 25 more years before Isaac, the son of promise, was born. And when that happened, it bolstered Abraham's faith that God would make good on the rest of his promises to extend his family, that through his family, the whole world would be blessed. And he knew that even if it didn't happen in his timeline, in his lifetime, that it would happen. Now, where he couldn't fill in the details, he filled in the blanks with faith. And now Mary connects that promise to her forefather, Abraham, and says, what's happening in my womb right now is fulfilling that promise that God made 
to Abraham more than 2,000 years ago. And in fact, Paul, the apostle, makes that same connection in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 7 and 9. He says, know that then, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel was preached to Abraham, friends, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. How is it that Abraham has descendants more than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea through faith? We become sons and daughters, descendants of Abraham through faith so that every tribe, every tongue, every nation could come and behold and become children of faith. See, God is creating for himself a people of Jews and Gentiles based, based on faith in God. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on later to say, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not, yet, was not yes and no, but in him, in Christ, it is always yes. All of the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. What Paul is saying is everywhere in the Bible you see a promise extended. The way it's fulfilled, the way it's a yes is in Christ. So when you read your Old Testament, when you read the Bible and you see a promise of God given, the answer is yes. It finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. We can have confidence that God will make good on all of his promise. It may seem like a long time has passed. God gave a promise to Abraham that he did not see come to fulfillment in his lifetime. It would be 2,000 more years before Mary sees the next stage of that promise be fulfilled. And it may seem slow to us, but God's timing, friends, is never slow. He works out his plan according to his strategy and his timeline. You see, friends, God is all powerful, which means nothing gets in his way. Sometimes I make promises that I genuinely intend to keep. But situation and circumstance means I'm powerless to do anything about it. But that's not the same way with God. He is all powerful. He makes promises and he has all the power and all the disposal at his, at his, at his becking power to keep them. He's all-knowing. So he's never blindsided or taken off guard. There's nothing coming down the tunnel of history that he's unaware of or anything that's gonna happen outside of his sovereign will and plan. And because he is all good, he does not lie. He doesn't make promises that he doesn't intend to keep. The Bible is full of promise after promise after promise from our promise-making and promise-keeping God. And in this song, the promise that's in Mary's foresight is God's promise of mercy and redemption. God's promise of mercy and redemption is fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now think about that for a moment. God's promise to redeem and extend mercy throughout human history has always been connected to the gift of his son 
as the payment price for our sin. And Mary hasn't connected all the dots yet, but she knows that the child in her womb is going to be how God fulfills his promise. John Donne, the great poet and preacher from the 1600s, said it like this. The whole life of Christ was a continual passion. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born a martyr. He found a Golgotha where he was crucified, even in Bethlehem, where he was born. For to his tenderness, then the straws were almost as sharp as the thorns after. And the manger is uneasy at first as his cross at last. His birth and his death were but one continual act. And his Christmas day and his Good Friday are but the evening and morning of one in the same day. God extends mercy through the gift of his son. He remembers his promise and brings fulfillment through the giving up of his only son. The advent of Christ, the coming of Christ in the world was this bold statement of God that he would not forget. He would remember and fulfill his promise and he would send his own self to make it happen. For the believer, our joy is not arbitrary and is not superficial. It is grounded in the reality that God remembers his promises to his people. So whatever promises God has made that are still yet to come, we have this bold assurance that God will make good on his promises as we look back on how God has fulfilled all the many promises to date. That's why we can remain steadfast in the midst of our suffering. That's why we have confidence in the midst of uncertainty. And that's why we can be hopeful in the midst of despair, of despair because God is a promise-keeping and a promise-remembering and a promise-fulfilling God. Seven Mile, is your joy connected to the God who redeems? Is your joy connected to the God who reorders and remembers? Have you come to the place where Mary's song, that first Christmas carol, is being sung in the depths of your soul? Have you come to call God your Savior? Have you come to that humble recognition of your need for God's reordering mercy in your life where you say, not my will, but yours be done. Not my way, but your way. God, come and reorder my life. Have you put your confidence in God knowing that he will remember his promises of mercy? And if you have, are you living out that joy? Are you sharing that joy? If not, remember the words of Martin Luther one more time. He said, there is such richness and goodness in this nativity that if we should see and deeply understand, we would be dissolved in perpetual joy. This Advent, let's see deeply. Let's not look past Mary. Let's not look past the child in her womb to deeply understand the richness and goodness in the nativity so that our souls would be anchored in perpetual joy. Let's pray.